Welcome to the Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. Hosted by RebelGrove.com publisher Neil McCrady and Pinnacle Trust financial guru Martin Palomo, the Mind on My Money podcast tackles the financial questions we're all thinking about. From paying for college to saving for retirement, from life insurance needs to 401ks and everything in between. The goal is to help you take the stress out of financial concerns and give you some tips to enjoy life while your mind is on your money. Now here are your hosts, Neil McCrady and Martin Paloma. Welcome to another edition of Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. I'm Neil McCready. I'm your host today. Martin Palomo, as always, is with me as well. Today, we are going to be visiting with Brooks Eason. He's um, written uh, some books. We're going to talk to, at least, at least written a book. We're going to talk to him about uh, about that. Uh, we're going to talk to him about uh, a, a lot of things. Let him tell his story. About he's going also going to talk about his experience as a uh, Pinnacle Trust client. So we'll get to that in a moment. First, let me tell you before we tell you about Pinnacle Trust. I'll tell you real quick that I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi. Six six two two five seven nineteen hundred is the number. Call it. Ask for Corey Clark. Tell him uh, what Ford product you're looking for. Just get a quote. If you're in the market for a vehicle, even if it's not a Ford necessarily, call Corey, get a quote. At the very least, it's going to help you moving forward. Make sure that you don't get snookered somewhere else in the uh, in the car market. It just might do for you what it did for me, which is get yourself into a Clark Ford. You'll love the product. You'll love the service after the sale. Corey wants to be your car guy. He wants to be your truck guy. People say, what does that mean? Call the number. You'll start to find out. 662 257 1900 and martin before we get to brooks tell the people that are listening to uh, this amazing soon to be award-winning podcast why they should call pinnacle trust and get in touch with you guys about their financial futures awesome i love it we are going to be we are an award-winning podcast we just haven't been we hadn't won any awards yet we got the we got the all-star we got the all-star team right they just don't know it yet that's that's exactly right we're the sleepers, man. It's going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. No, um, you know, uh, P- Stacy started Pinnacle a little more than 20 years ago, you know, really kind of stepped out to try to do things different than, um, you know, how uh, most clients were being served by, you know, larger investment firms or, or larger institutions. And really that culture is kind of permeated through the last two decades where, you know, it's not about, Um, trying to, you know, hit the home runs in your investment portfolios. It's really, really about, you know, hitting the home runs and getting runners uh, into, into home uh, in your, in your planning portfolio, making sure that we've kind of planned for, you know, what retirement could look like, try to plan for the unexpected during retirement as well. And, you know, the way that we do that is sitting down with folks, you know, one-on-one, you know, hearing their stories, hearing about the things that, uh, that make them, happy things that make them click what their goals and dreams are and, and really kind of putting together that path of you know how do we achieve success and security in retirement you know and a lot of folks have come uh, into their uh, savings for retirement in different ways some folks you know work hard their entire lives and save it you know in their 401ks or save it in their bank accounts or in their investment accounts uh, you know other folks have businesses that they sell uh, and come into, you know, a large landfall or windfall of, of cash. Uh, you know, and some folks are able to uh, either inherit <clears throat> funds from uh, from family members that have done a really good job of saving in the past, and then some folks uh, get it through a marriage that dissolves. Uh, so however folks end up with, you know, large buckets of, of funds that they may or may not know what to to do with from a planning standpoint. That's kind of where we come in the picture and, you know, not trying to, to, to use football terms since we're just coming off a rivalry week, but really we want to be, uh, you know, the quarterback for all of our clients. Our clients are the quote unquote owners of the teams. We just, we, we are the ones that know, you know, how to execute and really kind of which personnel need to be where. Uh, And that's, and that's kind of, you know, what Stacy designed the firm to, to be set up like is we want to be on the same side of the, ta- the table as our clients. You know, when they make money, you know, we earn money. When when they lose earn money, we, we earn less as well. And, you know, there's a lot of talk right now in our industry about fees and whatnot. And we're, you know, we're kind of out. We've been out ahead of that game 
for the last 20 years. So uh, anyway, I know I kind of went long-winded, but you know, we want to help folks put the puzzle pieces together um, for making sure they have a dignified uh, retirement. Brooks Easton is our guest today. Brooks, uh, welcome into the show. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I guess uh, before we get into um, a lot of your story and that kind of thing, just for the listeners out there, tell them a little bit about your background and uh, who you are. Uh, I'm a lawyer, uh, soon to be uh, enjoying a dignified retirement, I hope. <laughs> there we go. Uh, but I've been practicing law for more than 35 years. I grew up in Tupelo. Uh, I had wonderful parents. I went to Ole Miss to undergraduate school. Uh, as I told you before we went over there, I went to Duke to law school. And so I've lived in or around Jackson ever since and practiced law here ever since. Uh, I got my start writing a few years ago. I wrote my first book was entitled Travels with Bobby. And Bobby's my best friend and one of the funniest people on earth. And the book is about six hiking trips with him. Uh, and we just had so much fun and saw such beautiful things and uh, had so many goofy things happen to us that I decided I needed to write about it. And so uh, that book was published in uh, 2015, I believe. And then my new book that I'm here to talk about is, uh, is a memoir about the story of my adoption as an infant and uh, learning the identity of my birth mother. The title is Fortunate Son, The Story of Baby Boy Francis. I learned uh, not long before I turned 50 that my name had been Scott Francis for the first year of my life. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, and listening in, uh, Neil, before we kind of started recording, um, Brooks and I were talking, and I was you know, sharing a little bit about you know, my, my new sister, which we talked about in episode two, and we haven't really revisited. I'm sure we'll chat about that, you know, a good bit too. But one of the things that I just thought about when Brooks was talking, I've always joked about, you know, all the crazy stuff that's happened in my life. I need to write a book. I probably would have to hire someone to write for me. But it would be so much a comedy of errors versus <laughs> I would probably have to publish it as a, as a comedy and a tragedy you know, all at the same time because I've had so much crazy stuff happen. But Brooks, I mean, I want to, I know you, you gave us the little bit of the, the short blurb of, um, of your life, but I mean, I do want to hear about, you know, how did you come to find out, uh, you know, who your birth mother was and, and the adoption process and what that was like for you? Because I mean, I kind of just not in the same shoes as you, but, you know, just found out this year that, um, you know, I have a sister that's, that's, you know, 11 months or yeah, 10 months younger than me. Uh, and we've kind of been going through that whole process this year too. So what was it like for you, you know, and, and how did you find out who your birth mother was? And well, um, I always knew I was adopted. Uh, my, my parents got me from the Methodist home hospital when I was two and a half months old. And, uh, I was not officially adopted legally until I was 13 months old, and that's when my name got legally changed from Scott Francis to Paul Brooks Eason. But I had, you know, I had wonderful parents, uh, and they gave me a very secure life. We did not have any money to speak of. I, I grew up in Tupelo, and uh, so I tell people there was a vacant lot beside our house, and there was a creek beside the vacant lot, and those two things made me the richest boy in town. Absolutely. Uh, but anyway, I um, always knew I was adopted. I thought it was kind of interesting, but it wasn't all that big a deal to me. And I never did anything to try to find my birth mother, and I never would have. From time to time, I would hear somebody talk about being on a quest to find uh, biological relatives. And I just, I was curious, but not enough to really do anything. And I also thought that that might be uh, sort of hurtful to my parents that they might think I felt like I was missing something and I certainly never felt that way. So I never looked. Um, so fast forward from my adoption to uh, 47 years later, my, um, my daughter uh, got pregnant during the fall of her sophomore year at Ole Miss and decided that she would make the brave decision to have and keep her baby 
And a week before her daughter, my oldest grandchild was born in the summer of 2004, uh, my daddy in Tupelo uh, got a call and it was from a lawyer in New Orleans and she left him a message and said that she had been ordered to conduct a nationwide search for Paul Eason, age 46. And so my name is Paul Brooks Eason. I've always gone by Brooks. Um, and I was uh, less than a month away from my 47th birthday. And so he called me. I called them. Uh, I was going to play coy and not say I was the Paul Eason they were looking for. I was just going to say I was Brooks Eason and I was returning the call to my to my dad because uh, I didn't know if I had some old speeding ticket in Louisiana that would track me down for. <laughs> that's a, that's what I would have thought, too. I was in college, so <laughs> I, and they didn't tell Daddy it was because of an adoption. Uh, they just said they were looking for Paul Eason, age 46. But even though I was uh, going to play it coy, when the woman got on the phone, uh, her first words were, I can't believe we found you. And I said, what is this about? <laughs> and she said, an inheritance. And I said, tell me more. And so over the course of the next um, several weeks, both before and after my, uh, my granddaughter was born, I learned the more, the rest of the story. And uh, what I learned was this. My birth mother, Julie Francis, was a uh, rich socialite from Tulsa, uh, she got pregnant during the fall of her freshman year at Washington University in St. Louis. She was sent to New Orleans, where I was born, at the Methodist Home Hospital in July 1957. And uh, many years later, some lawyers discovered that her child, me, and I was her only child, uh, and this was after she died. She had a short, tragic life and died when she was only 47. Uh, but that her child, me, might have a valid claim to the fortune from her grandfather. And her grandfather was a man named Sidney Davis from Tulsa, who was, he had interest in oil and gas properties all over the country. He was also uh, the owner of the company that owned the only facility in the Western Hemisphere that made fluoride for toothpaste. And so he had an awful lot of money, and the lawyers determined, as a result of a couple of wills, that I might, this unknown heir, they didn't know who I was or where I was, they just knew Juliet had a baby, uh, that I might have a claim to the estate. So they litigated the case in both Tulsa uh, and in New Orleans, and ultimately uh, the Supreme Court of Louisiana ordered my adoption file to be released and uh, somebody searching for the adoption files found the one that was labeled Paul and Margaret Eason and uh, it was easy to find my daddy because he was still living in the same house uh, that my parents took me home to 47 years earlier and so they called him and he called me and uh, in the course of just a few weeks I learned the whole story. Wow, so you're that's incre uh, that's incredible. Yeah, no, I'm sitting here like I have so many questions too. <laughs> but um, so you learned all of this at the at the time that your your oldest grand granddaughter was was about to be born too. My adoption file was mailed to me from the court in New Orleans on the day she was born. Wow, wow. And you know when I when I started writing the book, um. I thought that the most interesting thing about it was, and by the way, I didn't get the fortune. So it's about how I nearly got rich. I got a fabulous story, but I didn't get a penny. Um, but I really thought that was the most interesting part of the story, was about how I nearly got rich but didn't. And I knew that it was, uh, you know, the coincidence of events, that I learned all of this right when my granddaughter was born under almost identical circumstances. I mean, my mother got pregnant in the fall of her freshman year. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing when you told the story. And uh, But the more I researched and read and talked to people, uh, the more I decided that really the more interesting story 
within the story was about how times have changed from 1957 when I was born until uh, 2004 and later years when my granddaughter was born. Because when I was born, you know, my mother was 18 years old. She was from a wealthy and very socially prominent family in Tulsa. Not only was her grandfather very, very wealthy, but her uh, her stepfather was president of Sinclair Oil Company. And um, there was just no way that she could be permitted to have and keep and raise a child born out of wedlock when she was 18 years old. Uh, but when my daughter got pregnant, you know, times had changed, and, and not altogether for the better, but uh, the stigma of having a baby uh, without being married is not what it was then. And so my daughter was able to uh, keep her child. And her child is a remarkable child. She is beautiful and brilliant, and she's uh, now 15. She skipped one class and skipped one grade and could skip all the rest if they would, if they would let her. And uh, she's in my life entirely because of uh, how times changed, because my birth mother last saw me when I was eight days old, and then she died uh, 18 years before uh, before I found out she was my mother. I know y'all talk sports a lot on this, and here, here's, here's one sports illusion y'all will remember. Well, maybe you won't, because you may not be old enough, but... Uh, in April of 1986, Jack Nicklaus um, became the oldest person ever to win the Masters. He was 46. Yeah, and the, ne the, ne the next day in Tulsa, uh, my birth mother, Julie Francis, died, and she was 47. Take me through the emotions of that day, learning so much about where you came from and getting your birth record and then that same day you become a grandfather and, and I'm sure it was a, a wonderful yet scary yet a lot going on with your daughter in that, in that moment. Uh, what, just, what was that, what were the whirlwind of emotions like? You know, uh, it's, it's, it's really hard to say. I, you know, I, I love, I had wonderful parents and I always knew I was adopted and had never really given a whole lot of thought about who was my birth mother or how I might be able to find her. And, you know, initially when I found all this out, uh, you know, I just didn't really even emotion, I guess. But the thing that I was most struck by was uh, it was just an amazing story. And it, it was, at least from my perspective, it was made more amazing by the fact that it was about me. Um, <laughs> as, you know, people would ask me, how, how do you feel about this? And I'm really not, I'm not sure. I mean, I've, I've in recent years gotten to know people in my birth mother's family. Uh, they've all been very warm and generous. And I've now got uh, two portraits of Julie uh, hanging on the wall in our house. Uh, but in terms of my emotions, it was... You know, I guess I was much more caught up in the birth of my uh, granddaughter than I was in finding out this story about me, as amazing as it was. Well, I know from, and 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 I have I haven't been in the on the side of discovering a you know a birth parent. I mean, I knew both of my parents, my biological parents, but just finding the new sister this year, and I'm I'm a pretty curious person. Um, and I agree with you that I, I love stories and I love good stories. And, and it's funny to hear you say, you know, Hey, I almost got rich, but that's not even the coolest part of, of this. The coolest part is the story behind all of that. And, you know, and I couldn't help but think, you know, I was, I, I it didn't even occur to me, you know, back in, in the fifties that, you know, if you come from a prominent family, you know, that probably was very much um, a hush-hush, and so it makes total sense to me now that you're born in New Orleans, and I'm sure you're, they probably had this fantastic story about, you know, where your mom was during, you know, a time period of while she would have been visibly pregnant um, without 
you know the the news coming out that that she had a that she had a child and then you fast forward to today you know and that's not even uh it's not it's really not a a, a, a negative stigma at least in my eyes you know in society that uh you know that that someone would would have a would be pregnant with a child i mean we had I had children at a young age. I was 21 when Christopher was born. Your granddaughter and my son are are the same age, you know. And we probably there was probably some stigmas around us being, you know, young parents, and we didn't have a clue what we were doing. Um, I still don't know that I have a clue what I'm doing with with parenting kids. But you know, finding this new sister too has been really exciting, and the journey and everything that's kind of come along with it has been really exciting and we i mean neil that that podcast we well we talked for an hour just about um you know the the journey the first meetings of with with aaron my new sister and then we really haven't even revisited the subject until you know we brought you on board brooks but i mean i could totally see where you're coming from saying the money didn't matter whether you did or didn't get the the inheritance i mean it may, may have made life a little more comfortable but you've done a really good job of you know, you've had a great career. You've done a good job of saving on your own, and we'll we'll talk about that later as well with with things that you've we've helped with along the way. But yeah, the story that you got from from all of this is worth its weight, uh, you know, in gold. And and it's you know it's an amazing story. And you know, there's probably more people out there that have a a similar story that just aren't telling it, or maybe they don't have the platform, uh, uh, you know, since, to tell it. Since my book was published, which was uh, less than a month ago. I can't tell you how many new stories I have learned. Uh, people in my law firm have said, you know, either I had a baby or I adopted a child. Right. Or, uh, just remarkable stories. A couple of things occurred to me while you were talking about how times changed and, you know, what was the cover story. Right. To explain why. While she was missing for. Yeah, gone yeah. from school for a semester. So she would have dropped out of school from for her spring semester in uh, 1957, and um, I found this uh, remarkable Facebook page for the alumni of Methodist Home Hospital, that is, the women who went there to give birth and the babies who were born there, and it quit being a home for unwed mothers in 1973. Uh, that was the year Roe versus Wade was decided, and the demand for homes for unwed mothers uh, dropped. But to read these stories of these women who were sent there in the 50s and 60s and the beginning of the 70s to have their babies and then sign away legal rights never to see them again was just remarkable. And it was treated as such a matter of shame and secrecy. You know, they didn't go there when they were eight months pregnant. They went there when they were four months pregnant before they started the show. And they were actually given aliases so that nobody would know who they were. You know, the girls wouldn't know who they were. They wouldn't be able to uh, track them down at all. Uh, just on last week, I managed to track down Julie's uh, first husband uh, in New Jersey. Oh, wow. When I was doing research. Was, you know, I, I knew his name was Lee Farnham. I found a Lee Farnham in New Jersey who was still working, uh, almost 80, uh, still working as a stockbroker. And you know, he and Julie divorced in 1970, so I didn't know what he might remember, and I didn't know if this was the right guy. I just knew Lee Farnham, and I found this guy. So I sent him an email and said, I'm Julie Francis' biological son. Uh, if you're the right Lee Farnham, I'd like to talk to you. And my phone rang five minutes later. Wow. And, uh, so how did that conversation go? You know, he he knew, he did not know when they got married that Julie had had a child. They got married in uh, 1964. I was finishing the first grade in Tupelo. They had a big fancy wedding in Tulsa and hardly anybody there knew. Uh, but he had a remarkable memory. Uh, I relied on him for a lot of the things in the book. Um and on just last week, uh, he sent me a package, and it had wedding pictures of them uh, and some other pictures from during the time when they were married. And it also had their wedding announcement. And this is when you were talking about the story. 
what would the story be? Some of these um, women who were at the Methodist Home Hospital who had their babies said that the cover story was that they got sent away to Drones Business College to study. Uh-huh. That's where they were. Well, Julie's wedding announcement that I just saw the other day for the first time said that she graduated from Washington University uh, and she also studied at the University of Vienna. Well, I, I was, like Europe, Vienna. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> not you know, um, not one in New Orleans. Yeah, and she was. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they were too wealthy for her to go with the Drones Business College excuse. Ah, uh, okay, that makes sense. That makes so, sense. That makes sense. I, I was wondering where I, that was going to. I don't know if she went to the University of Vienna or not, but when I read that, I thought that could explain. This is where I've been the last uh, yeah. know, during the spring semester. I mean, a study abroad that totally fits the narrative of you know a, a wealthy college student i mean and even today so today maybe even middle class college student but definitely a wealthy college student are you positive it wasn't vienna louisiana just a few minutes away from lovely cosmopolitan ruston and is that is it is it possible well let, let me just ask you a question about that is there a university of vienna louisiana i mean there probably should be and it, <laughs> but if there is it's really really small and very private Incredibly exclusive. No, I'm kidding. That, that is an unbelievable deal. It, Absolutely. And it does tell you how times have changed, right? I mean, it, it, it's, uh, that's, that's crazy. So when you got to talk with, I guess, can I call him your stepdad? Wait, would that, would that be correct? Your Francis's, your mother's first husband. I'm sorry. What was his name again? Uh, Lee Farnham. Lee, thank you. I had a total ADD moment on you. Sorry about that. So when you talk, when you got to talk to Lee, <clears throat> was he able to help kind of fill in some? I mean, you said he helped you with a lot of the pieces of the book, but he was able to help fill in the narrative of, you know, what I guess transpired after your mom left New Orleans, I guess, and, and ended up getting married. Yeah, they met in um, Denver. Uh, he was working for Pan Am Airline, right. and she was uh, a travel agent for not very long, I don't think. And I think it was the only job she ever held because she didn't have to. Uh, and there's a lesson there about the damage that can be done to people who've got so much money that they don't have to work. And, and she was a severe alcoholic and died of cirrhosis when she was only 47. But they they met in Denver, uh, came home to, to her home, Tulsa. Uh, he was from the Northeast. He went to Middlebury College in Vermont. Yeah, uh, great school. But he, um, they went to Tulsa. They had this big wedding. He said that he told me he said, I, you know, I assumed that her family had money. I didn't really have an idea how much, but the week before the wedding, her grandfather presented me with a prenup uh, and required that I sign it before the wedding. And from that, he said, I got the sense that it was probably a lot of money. Um, but they, you know, they were only married six years and lived in Salt Lake City and then they lived in, uh, South America, in Colombia. He worked for Pan Am and went on many, many wonderful trips he told me about. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, he was going to take a job in Mexico City and she was tired of living abroad and she'd never gotten very good at Spanish and so, uh, at least the way he described it, it was not really an acrimonious breakup. They just decided to go their separate ways. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, what he knew about her was from that slice of her life from the time they started dating until they divorced. But he also knew a lot about her grandfather, Sidney Davis, and stories of how he got wealthy. He was a mining engineer, and you know, early in his career, instead of uh, getting paid a straight salary, he negotiated to get a piece of the action. And he was good at what he did, and the piece of the action grew, and uh, he wound up being fabulously wealthy. That's kind of, it's funny, that's kind of my, we talked about this in episode one, that was my dad's story. Um, he was an engineer, not, you know, doing anything with mining or minerals, but um, that was how he kind of started his venture, was not taking a salary per se, but taking a piece of of the action. It's, I'm not trying to make our stories the same, Brooks, but man, our <clears throat> there's a lot of the story that you're telling that, you know, you're really kind of telling 
a lot of my story as well, which I think that's the great thing about you know, having platforms like this with the podcasting is, is stories are interesting. It's kind of like the fiber of life. I think this is what's, this is what's fun. I, I love hearing other people's stories, which, you know, I think Stacy sometimes kicks me uh, for getting super long winded in client meetings and, and asking a bunch of questions about stories too. But I just, it just fascinates me and I can spend, you know, hours listening and telling stories and, and I know at some point I have to get down to business as well when when we're meeting with clients. But why don't you hate that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, it's uh, it is it's uh, the the listening to how people you know get to where they are in life is really the most fascinating piece of of what we do at Pinnacle, in my opinion. Because I mean, there are millions of different ways to get to the top of the mountain, right? You know, and that's uh, <clears throat> you know, no path is the same. Which you know, whether it's your financial security, whether it's your uh, you know what you're trying to the imp- the imprint you're trying to leave on life you know your legacy per se but uh it's just fascinating to hear you know all these people's stories and hear different stories and i think a lot of people don't realize how interesting their stories are sure you know, they just it's been probably think oh i'm just boring no one wants yeah. to hear, hear about me um, you know my, my daddy was was the most modest of men and would never have bragged on anything he ever did but you know, he was a great man and a remarkable man. He was a Boy Scout leader for more than 60 years. His Boy Scout troop in Tupelo started camping every month uh, in the summer of 1951. And they have not missed a single month since then. And, you know, the legacy that he left with all of those, uh, you know, boys who grew into men, you know, some are still young men. He, he had scouts that, have, uh, that died before he did. Uh, but he would never say, let me sit down and tell you about myself. He just wasn't made that way. And I think a lot of people of his generation weren't made that way. Sure. Sure. I mean, I obviously don't feel that way. I'm perfectly comfortable sitting down and talking about myself. You're a boomer. Yeah, I <laughs> guess I am. <laughs> I'm curious, as, as a journalist who has written a lot over the last, I don't know, 20-something years, I always have people tell me, hey, you ought to write a book. And I'm always like, ah, I'm not writing a book. And I'm, I'm not writing a book. But I, I am fascinated by people who ultimately do write a book about the book writing process, which I think is far more difficult than the just average person out there thinks it is. I'm curious your experience with the, the book writing process, putting your story onto, onto paper, if you will. Yeah, somebody told me the other day that uh – they read my book in two days, and I said, you know, that's really not fair. It took me two and a half years to write it. <laughs> you know, it's it's 80,000 words. How'd you read it in two days? Uh, but this, you know, after I wrote my first book, and I had a lot of fun doing it, um, and I knew that I wanted to write this book, and, you know, I... I'm better at writing than I am at sitting down and preparing some outline of what it's going to say. And so I just, you know, started writing. And one of the difficulties I had was that I was learning things and researching things along the way. And so I kept having to add things. I, I bet I learned, I bet I learned half the things in the book after I started writing the book. Yeah. And, um, you know, just, um, I, I learned, we were in final production, the, the uh, publisher had the manuscript, and I found out that my best friend's mother had handled the logistics and the paperwork for my adoption and kept it a secret from me for more than 60 years. Oh, wow. And I said, well, I got to talk to her, she's almost 92, uh, I wound up sending her the manuscript because I thought she's almost 92. It probably shouldn't wait until it's actually published. But, uh, you know, she told me this whole story about how that was her job in Lee County and Tupelo to handle the, uh, the logistics of adoptions. And she told me how, you know, how much care went into making sure that appropriate adoptive parents were, um, were chosen. She said, she said she always thought they were more particular than God. Hmm. Um, and they, they certainly chose wonderful parents for me. So do you think it's any coincidence that 
so you're you're you built your you did your whole career as an attorney and writing and researching and 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 really being wordsmith at least that's what i think of when i think of attorneys i think of you know very very intelligent very smart um you know wordsmiths do you think that that's helped you at all in the and you know being able to communicate effectively in a book where people would be intrigued and interested enough to pick it up and read it um sure uh, i have written for a living forever uh, i uh, you know i try to teach young lawyers to be better writers and one of the things i try to teach them is not to write like lawyers uh, thank you people, people will pick up you know, these old tricks of the trade from lawyers just because they've been doing it forever and it's, you know, winds up being confusing legalese that doesn't help anybody. And so I try to, try to, you know, try to get young lawyers to write interesting briefs because interesting re- briefs are more persuasive than, than dull, you know, just black letter law briefs. So I, I do think that uh, writing as a lawyer has helped me. It's not identical. Um, to creative writing in any stretch, but I've I've also um, written for fun for many many years. Uh, this will be another sports illusion for y'all. There you go. We like that. When I was in this will be an Ole Miss illusion, Ole Miss football illusion. When I was in um, law school, and I was uh, poor and had no money for for Christmas presents, uh, one. Um, one Christmas, I wrote short stories for my parents, uh, which I'm sure they appreciated more than a cardigan. And uh, so, the one that I gave, the one I gave to my mother, was about the creek uh, beside the Next house, house, beside our house, which is where she taught me to fish. Uh, and the one for my daddy was about two Boy Scout Troop 12 campouts and two Ole Miss football games during uh, Archie Manning's junior year at Ole Miss, 1969. Uh, and I was, you know, I was 12 years old, so I was old enough to understand sports. And my daddy went to Ole Miss, and we were serious, serious fans. And I was not old enough to have girls on the mind, sure. cars on the mind, or anything like that. So I was... Not corrupted yet. I was into it in a big, big way. And uh, it just so happened that two of the most famous games of that famous season, uh, the game against Alabama, uh, that Ole Miss lost 33-32, and the game against Tennessee, uh, about a month later that Ole Miss won 38 to nothing, happened to coincide with two uh, campouts. We were at Tishomingo State Park, and the Ole Miss-Alabama game was the first nationally televised night game. And we couldn't watch it because we were sitting around the campfire listening to it on our portable radios. And then uh, five weeks later, we were at Shiloh. It was a day game. We were hiking through the battlefield. Uh, Again, listening to our portable radios as Ole Miss got revenge from having lost the previous year to Tennessee 31 to nothing. I'm sure I'm the oldest person on this call, but that was the game that inspired uh, someone to write The Ballad of Archie Who uh, about the Tennessee linebacker, Hee-Haw Kiner. So I've been writing for fun for many years. I I write uh, occasional dirty limericks that we cannot discuss on this podcast. All right. I do have to make one comment when you just said that because... I probably this is going to get me in trouble. I don't care. So <clears throat> there is a podcast. Stacy's looking at me. I'm going to get in trouble. I don't care. Neil, forgive me. All of our listeners, forgive me. There's a podcast that these three British guys did, and it's really kind of like, did you did you guys ever watch Mystery Science Theater 3000, where they would have these old terrible movies on and there was these three a dude a guy and two robots would just make fun of the movies and they were b movies as a, as a, as a hysterical show i loved I'm, i guess i'm too nerdy for you guys but anyway so there's this podcast called it's it's a british podcast it's called my dad wrote a porno oh yeah it's one and of the so, best podcast ever done oh my gosh okay so thank god i'm not the only person it is hysterical it's awesome absolutely hysterical so it's it's these three it's a son who's he reads his dad's erotic novel 
chapter by chapter. So episode one is chapter one, and so on and so forth. He discovers it. A little background. He discovers it, basically. <laughs> uh, his dad, I, I believe his, his father was still alive, but he discovered, he, he discovered it kind of cleaning out his dad's office slash work study or whatnot and stumbled across it and was horrified and ended up sitting down with his friends. He had a couple of friends, a male friend and a female friend, and he would they would start reading it together. They would basically make a night of it, and they would pour wine, and they're reading it, and, and they turned it into a podcast, and uh, it's where he reads it, and they comment on it as it yep. goes. And it is so I'm, – I'm a – I'm kind of a reclusive weirdo, I think, in in, 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 the, real, in the real world, um, especially the last for several years of my existence here in Oxford, where I've I've made more enemies than I have friends, and and uh, so I'm I'm the weirdo that will go like grocery shopping with headphones on, and uh, I, I and listen to and I and, and listen to podcast, and I would listen to that I do the one. Same thing. And there were times, there was one time in Kroger, I remember specifically where it was. I was on aisle three. And it was so funny that I was I was so, laughing out loud. Well, I was not only laughing out loud, but I was kind of bent over. I was in stitches, and people looked at me like, "Man, I always knew that guy was weird, but he's even weirder than I thought." But it it, it is it is one of the most fantastic, hilarious, uncomfortable, awkward, funny every everything you can imagine. And and because the guy that's reading it, it's his dad's work, and yeah. and the people that are commenting on it. Are just are his buddies. They're his buddies, they're ripping and, him. and they're just destroying him. And he's a, so. Let me. You're a, you're a good writer, Brooks. This, he's an awful writer. Yeah, he's awful. <laughs> it's <laughs> self published, and it is. It's. I mean, his use of it's awful. It's, it's fantastic. But so my, my dad made a porno. It's called my dad wrote a porno. Wrote a porno. <laughs> I'm sending myself an email about it while y'all are talking about it's, it. Here, so I, it is so good. It is so. Good. Some of yes. the descriptions are just so wildly awkward and incredibly bad that it is. They're phenomenal. I mean, you just and they're and they're British too. So you got to. I love dry British humor as well. It's yeah. real intelligent, real witty, and it's fantastic. It's. It's probably one of the greatest things that I've stumbled upon unknowingly. And at first, so I, uh, never mind, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I'm well, just going to give it a listen. I tell you, one thing I know for a fact is that my dad never wrote a poem. <laughs> but I'm going to find this and I'm going to check it out uh, oh, because man. I'm different from him. And I oh, like it. Sorry, Neil. I just, I, I totally had an ADD moment when, when Brooks said that, you know, he, that he had written some things that might not be appropriate to talk about. I totally, my brain just went directly to my dad wrote a poor all, all good. Sweet. Oh, and I, I and, and Neil, I know we're, we're, we may be bumping on time, but I wanted to kind of, I wanted to shift gears just a second. It's not really shifting, but it's just, we're going to move into a, uh, a take a turn. So <clears throat> Brooks, I know we've talked a lot about the book and your story and, and you, and you didn't get the inheritance, um, you know, that that the lawyer called about. But you have had, you know, a, a successful career. Tell me a little bit about, you know, how did you end up meeting Stacy? Um, and if you don't mind, talk a little bit about, you know, how, what kind of happened from start to kind of where you guys, you know, where the, your family is now, you know, after after meeting Stacy. Okay. Well, um you know, my dad was very, very conservative financially, and uh, I'm not as conservative as he was. Uh, I've made more money than he did, but I've always made a point not to spend as much as I make, and so I, you know, worked at saving and building a nest egg. And uh, I, I guess Stacy and I, you know, I needed somebody to not just manage our money but also to basically help tell me where we were uh, so that I could be comfortable that we would be able to have a dignified retirement as you called it and hopefully a little better than dignified there you go. hopefully a, a dignified retirement that includes some fun trips and such and so uh, I met with Stacy and decided that he was my guy and uh 
you know, the one thing that sets him apart and sets Pinnacle apart to me is is what a good job y'all do with client relations and making sure your clients know what they have, know what to expect, know, uh, you know, what their lives can be like. Uh, as as Stacy's told me, uh, you know, the one variable should be how much my children inherit. And, you know, my wife and I don't live uh, an extravagant lifestyle, and we're not going to, but we live well. And um, and it's nice to know that we can live that way comfortably without having to worry about running out. Uh, and that's what that's what Pinnacle has given me. Well, and I appreciate you kind of coloring that in too, because I think one of the things I know for sure that you know it's that's it's a it's a definitely ingrained in the culture is you know everybody wants to talk about you know, what's going on in the markets and how is the portfolio doing? And people can get caught up so much in the today stuff, you know, oh, yesterday the market was down, you know, 1% or 2% and people will get in a tizzy about that. Well, one of the things I know we've tried to do is try to calm that anxiety in folks, you know, using our our planning tools where we bring our, our clients in and we talk about, you know, hey, okay, so we want to take a trip to, you know, Europe with the grandkids in, you know, two years is, are we on track to be able to do that? You know, we want to have the mountain home or the beach home in, you know, a couple of years or today, if we did it today, are, you know, is it going to mess up our retirement plans? You know, that's the, really the culture that we've tried to, to build is away from the, you know, what's going on day to day in the markets. Cause we can't control that. Right. I, I have zero control whether the markets go up or whether the markets go down. Um, but you know, what we do have control of is looking at cash flows and making sure that, you know, like you said, we're not spending more than you're making or saving. Uh, and then if you do want to, you know, have a second home or a vacation home or take big trips that we're building that into the planning process versus, you know, I know a lot of people do want to get caught up in the, Hey, the market was up 20% this year. You know, what's my portfolio doing? Where we rather folks go, hey, am I on track to, you know, to retiring with having those trips that you talked about or having the second home or the beach home? Did you find that to be your experience or tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I've, I've had some um, decisions to make uh, over the last several years. Uh, um, Three years ago, I decided that I wanted to cut back on how much I worked, um, in part so that I could have time to write this book. Um, and so I, you know, I contacted Stacy and said, "This is what I'm thinking about doing. Let's meet and talk about whether this is a wise thing to do or whether this uh, whether this puts us at some risk." Awesome. And uh, Stacy said. Uh, sure fine and I told him I said you know if you're wrong uh, Carrie and I are going to move in with you and Lynn so you might want to check make the sure numbers again right. and make sure that you're right and I don't know if he checked the numbers again but it's you know it's just something that I know I can come to y'all and um, say hey I'm thinking about doing this what effect will this have and y'all can you know crunch the numbers and run the numbers and uh see that I'll never have to live with Stacy. Nice. <laughs> now that's gonna I think that's a great that's what that's what we're gonna say now is hey if if we're wrong on our forecast you get to move in with Stacy and Lynn. I might just be wrong on my forecast for myself and see if he's got room for another kid and and three more grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> he's over here squirming. Stacy could adopt you. He so could. I, I had wonderful adoptive yeah. parents. Stacy could adopt you. He could. He's got two pretty cool, pretty cool boys. Well, Brooks, I know we're kind of running up on time a little bit here. So we've talked, we did talk a lot about the book and I appreciate you, you know, talking a little bit about your experience with us and, you know, and helping you be able to, to have some confidence that you could, you know, peel it back from work a little bit and be able to write this book and not cause, you know, harm to yourself and your family from a financial standpoint. 
but so if if someone wants to buy your book or get a copy of of your book where's how do folks do that where is amazon is it getting in touch with you do you have a website tell us tell us where folks can do that uh, i do have a website brookseason.com uh, if somebody wants to get a signed book from me uh, they should feel free to contact me you can send me an email to uh Beeson, that's my first initial Beeson at BakerDonaldson.com. Baker Donaldson is my law firm, and um, it's Baker Donaldson is D-O-N-E-L-S-O-N.com. There are also a number of ways to order the book that you can find uh, on the publisher's website. The publisher is Word Crafts, Crafts with an S on the end of it, Press of Nashville, and if you search for my book on the on their website, you can see a bunch of different ways to order it. It's in several bookstores, but I really have not made much of an effort to get it placed in bookstores yet. But if you go to WordCrafts with an S Press dot net slash books slash fortunate hyphen son, you can see all sorts of ways to order it on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, a lot of different sites. Uh, and it would be a wonderful Christmas present. <laughs> great, great for the stocking too, right? Absolutely, perfect great, size for stockings. A great family story for uh, family members that you love. So we could do fortunate. We could Google fortunate son, and 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 Neil and I, I'll make an effort to put it in the show notes too for our listeners. If um, you know, if if they are interested, we'll we'll put the links um in the show notes when I publish it on on our website too. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Brooks, thanks so much for the time. Uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you and yours. And uh, appreciate you spending some time with us today. You too, Neil. It's been a pleasure. Uh, that does it for this edition of Mind of My Money podcast. Thanks to you, Martin, as always. It was always fun. We'll be back uh, next week. I think, Martin, you already have uh, a little bit of a show planned for next week, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I do want I'm – gonna, I'm going to get Reed Davis back on with us um, to talk about – you know, kind of giving an update for, you know, where we are economy-wise, markets. And December is always kind of a fun time during the markets um, because they had the quote-unquote Santa Claus rally. But last December proved us very wrong. It was not a Santa Claus rally. We got punished last December. We're hoping that this December is is definitely different than last. But, uh, yeah, we'll kind of talk about that, kind of talk about what's going on in the world and probably, you know, give some updates and, and Neil, you and I can chat about it too. It's uh, from you know the political side. We're starting to get some front runners, and um, you know on the Democratic side, and talk about some new things that have come out. So that's kind of that's that's the plan for next week. Well, Martin, thanks again. We'll uh, we'll Absolutely. be back next week. Until then, thank you all for listening. Thanks again for uh, Pinnacle Trust. It's pintrust.com. P-I-N-N trust.com. Check them out on the web. And until next week, take care. <laughs>